Let's now turn our attention to the Word of God. We're going to be looking at the last chapter of the book of John, chapter 21. We're going to look at the entire uh, chapter. It's one unit. That's on page 907 of the ESVP Bibles, if you're looking out of one of those. But it's chapter 21, starting at verse 1. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would graciously teach us from your word everything we need to know from this passage. Help us to apply it, and as a result, be equipped to live lives that are more glorifying to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark and Rachel had moved into a new house and they needed some new furniture, some new living room furniture. They needed a coffee table and two end tables. But Mark thought that the prices at the furniture stores were way too high. And as they left the last store they looked at, he said, there is no way I'm paying that much for a couple of tables. So they went to a discount store and they looked at that furniture. There there was much less to choose from and the furniture was cheaper, but it was made with less quality materials. And Rachel said she wanted something that was going to last. So then they looked at used furniture, but they couldn't find the style they were looking for. Rachel said she wanted a farmhouse style, kind of modern rustic, and she was showing Mark some pictures on her phone of what she wanted, and he said, oh, why don't I just make that? How hard can it be? Rachel agreed, as long as it was done by Christmas. Mark enthusiastically drew up some plans, he made some measurements, he went to the hardware store and got some wood, He came back and headed out to the garage and and, and dug into the project. He made some initial cuts, but very quickly he ran into some problems. Uh, He wasn't exactly quite sure where the shelves should be or how exactly to, to attach them so it would look nice. And then he wasn't sure about the doors, and then he, he wasn't quite sure how to join the corners so it would look like it wasn't just nailed together. And he thought, I'm probably going to need some more tools to make this happen. And he came in from the garage and said, I need to do some more research. So he started watching some videos on table making and cabinet making. This turned into days and weeks. And each time Rachel asked him about the furniture, he would say, I'm still doing research. Finally, a couple months went by. Christmas was only a month away, and Rachel was getting impatient. She said, I don't think this is working. I appreciate your desire to save us money, but there is a whole pile of unfinished business out in the garage and no furniture in our living room. And Mark realized that he was not going to be able to pull off the project. And in resignation, he said, fine, let's just buy some. Mark had unfinished business with a living room furniture project, and he left it unfinished. Unfinished business means there's something incomplete 
or unresolved. Mark had unfinished business with a living room project. We can have unfinished business with anything we start but, but don't complete. We can have unfinished business with our relationships with other people. We can even have unfinished business with God. After the resurrection, Jesus and Peter had some unfinished business. Peter had denied Jesus three times, and Peter's reputation and his future as a leader in the church was was on the line. It had a dark cloud over it. This triple denial business between them was, was unfinished. It needed to be resolved. This wasn't something that Peter could just pretend like it never happened and, and try to just move on without dealing with it. John chapter 1 is about Jesus and Peter's unfinished business. Jesus confronts Peter with both rebuke and restoration. And so we're going to look at both. We're also going to talk about what it means to love Jesus. That's the question Jesus asks three times. And of course, we're going to talk about how important it is not to leave any unfinished business with God. So let's read the chapter in its entirety. This is John chapter 21, starting at verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. John, uh, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were able to haul it in. Now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples, that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus left following him, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain alive, uh, remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and whom has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them written to be written, I suppose that the whole that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This first section is called Gone Fishing. Verse 1 says, after this, so sometime after the appearance to Thomas, which we looked at last week, and before his ascension, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Sea of Tiberias is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. Don't let that throw you off. And he revealed himself in this way. That's the introduction that John provides for this final scene. This is called the epilogue on the book of John. I think some of us are familiar with sometimes how how movies uh, come to a conclusion and, and the credits start to roll, which can last several minutes. And then normally the screen just goes dark, but once in a while the screen will brighten up again and there will be this bonus scene. There will be this kind of extra scene at the end of the movie and it, and it tells some last little bit. This is kind of like the extra scene. John has concluded his book at the end of chapter 20 and he gives the purpose statement of the book of John. Now we have this final scene, this epilogue, this, this scene between Jesus and Peter. This, this bonus scene answers the question, what happened to Peter after his denials? Or how did Peter go from denying Jesus to being a leader in Christ's church? This scene answers those questions. Verse 2 lists all the disciples who were present, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other unnamed men. These men will serve as witnesses to Peter's restoration. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. The message that Jesus gave his disciples by way of Mary Magdalene back in Matthew 28.10 was, tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Well, they are in Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is in Galilee. But an unknown amount of time has passed since Jesus delivered that message and an unknown amount of time has passed since he appeared to them behind locked doors. And during that unknown period of time, they appear to not have any contact with Jesus. They haven't heard from him. They haven't seen him. Because verse 14 tells us this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So time number one was Resurrection Sunday, that evening, 
Behind Locked Doors, minus Thomas. Time two is the next Sunday, Behind Locked Doors, with Thomas. And then this is number three. This is it. They have not seen Jesus. And remember, the disciples don't have the book of Acts in front of them to read like a script. They don't know what the plan is. They've been told that they're being sent by Jesus as he has been sent by the Father. They've been told that they are going to be proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins to to the nations. Okay, when? How? They're, They're soldiers waiting for orders, but the orders aren't coming. Maybe they stood around and prayed the entire day after his last appearance. Maybe for a couple days they, they waited eagerly and expectantly, but eventually when Jesus is not showing up, they have to answer the question, now what? And they are coming to terms with the fact that things are not the same. They are no longer walking in the footsteps of Jesus anymore. They are no longer hearing Jesus teach them every day. They are no longer watching Jesus perform miracles in front of their eyes. They're no longer in the Jerusalem temple hanging back watching Jesus spar with the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders and and teach them and and, and prove from the scriptures that, that God has visited them in his son. For the first time in years, they were aimless. They have no clear purpose right now. And so Peter makes the decision and speaks up. I'm going fishing. I'm going back to what I was doing before Jesus walked into my life. I don't know what God wants me to do right now, but I have to do something, so I am going fishing. And the rest of the disciples uh, must have been feeling some of that same despondency, kind of lack of purpose, because they chime in without skipping a beat. Yep, me too. Uh, Let's go. Sounds good. We will go with you. We're all going to go fishing. Verse 3 concludes, they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Do you know that feeling when you've gone on vacation and you've gone somewhere that's been a, a lot of fun and you've got some great memories, you've seen some fantastic things, but then you come back and it's that first Monday morning after vacation and you get in your car and you drive to work and you go to that same building And you walk in the same front door and you see the same people and you sit at the same desk or you pick up those same tools, put on those same safety glasses, whatever it is that you have to do to to get back to work. Vacation's over. You have the memory, but it's time to get back to work. It's time to get back to real life and reality. And I wonder if that wasn't some of the feelings that they were experiencing at this point as they climbed back into the same boat and they stripped down for the same work and they started handling the same nets and they were wondering if their time with Jesus wasn't some big break from life. They'd seen some exciting things, but now they're going back to the way things used to be, back to reality. Were they really just going to pick up where they had left off? And this feeling might have been uh, accentuated by the boat itself. Luke 5, 3 says, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. So Jesus called Peter from this boat. And now Peter's getting back into the boat. It's like he 
had come full circle and was right back where he started, in his boat, fishing. And the cherry on top is that even though they worked all night, they caught nothing. Great. This is the only thing I know how to do. And I'm not even that good at it anymore. This, this looks like a low point. Especially for Peter. I mean, he and Jesus have this unfinished business to take care of. Um, they, they've never talked it out after Peter's failure. And now he's fishing again. And wondering maybe if his sin had gone too far. As Peter fished in the dark all night, we have to wonder if he wasn't thinking, I guess this is my life now. Verse 4, Jesus on shore. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Remember, Jesus seemed to have picked when people recognized him after the resurrection. From everything we can gather, he he looked like himself, but he didn't look like himself. There was just something different after the resurrection, and Jesus chose the time and place when people recognized him. Verses 5 through 8, Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? This is a typical greeting for someone who happens upon some fishermen. Still is. Still is. If you, if you happen upon someone who's fishing, what's the first question you're going to ask them? Have you caught anything? Very typical. This would not have aroused any suspicion that the man standing on the shore was Jesus. They answer him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now that comment, on the other hand, would have raised red flags. They've been here before. They've, they've had a miraculous catch of fish at the direction of Jesus before. It was when he called them. We've toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, we will put the nets down. Remember that? That's the calling. So they catch the fish, so many they could not pull the net in, which confirmed it was Jesus. John says, it is the Lord. And Peter couldn't restrain himself. He immediately jumps in, swims to the shore, leaving the rest to bring in the catch. But when he got to the shore, not only was Jesus there, it says also a charcoal fire. A charcoal fire. The Greek word for charcoal fire is used only twice in the entire New Testament. Here, and guess where else it's used? John eighteen eighteen. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Do you know how certain smells can bring back memories? You can be at home or at work or or walking around outside and if you catch a whiff of the right scent, it immediately takes you back to the moment in time where you first smelled that. I mean, just instantly. I, I, I can have smells that take me back 10, 20. I could have smells that take me back to childhood. And, and just like that, I'm there. And all the memories associated with that smell, I can picture exactly where I was, who was there. And the memory's all in color. I mean, it's very vivid. Charcoal fire has a very distinctive smell. Jesus is intentionally bringing Peter back to that night. He's bringing Peter back to the night when he stood with the enemies of Jesus. He's bringing Peter back to the night when he denied 
Jesus. Verses 10 through 14, we have a command of Christ, bring some fish that you've just caught, and then we have a command fulfillment. So Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore. That's exactly what we want to see, immediate obedience to the word of Christ. And then John records the exact number of fish, 153. Now, why would he include the exact number of fish like that? This is kind of one of the, a, a very unique situation. He doesn't normally record the number of fish. Uh, some try to find meaning in the number itself, but there really isn't anything significant about the number 153. And in general, we want to stay away from any kind of numerology when we're interpreting the Bible. It's just not good practice. So no, there's no hidden meaning in the number 153. I think the best way to understand this detail and the rest of the details that John is including about the miraculous catch is to compare it with the original miraculous catch, Luke 5. Both passages describe Jesus directing Peter and others to let down their nets for a catch. Both passages record the fishermen catching a large quantity of fish. However, Luke 5 takes place at the beginning of their time with Jesus. John 21 takes place at the end. So they serve as bookends to their time with Christ. And everything in between was their time being discipled and built up and equipped and taught. When Jesus called them, they were fishermen. Now they are fishers of men. That's what he told them he was going to make them into, and he has. They are now fishers of men. When they were being called to follow Jesus in Luke 5, it says they caught a large number of unspecified fish, and it says their net was breaking. Luke 5, 6 says, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. But in our passage, they catch a specific number of fish, 153, and their nets were not breaking, even though they should have. Verse 11 says, uh, the net was not torn, and under normal circumstances, this amount of large fish should have torn it. Otherwise, why would John write, and although there were so many, the net was not torn? He's trying to tell us something with these details. Both the precise number of fish and the nets not breaking are here for a reason. John 21 is teaching them and us by extension, things are going to be different now. You're no longer fishermen. You, you are fishers of men. And this catch is symbolic of the work that you are going to be doing as fishers of men. You're not going to be catching large amounts of indiscriminate number of fish. You're going to be catching specific amounts of the elect, specific people that God is calling. You're going to be catching them. And none are going to be lost. No one's going to escape. No one's going to fall through. The net of God's grace and sustaining power will not allow one of Jesus' sheep to be lost. They will all be brought in. Rebuke and restoration, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, so it's time for Jesus and Peter to address the elephant in the room. The, the meal is over. We're going to push our dishes to the side. Let's, let's have it out at the kitchen table. Now there are two things happening here. Rebuke and restoration. First of all, Jesus is impressing upon Peter the seriousness of his denials. So that part is a, a rebuke. And Jesus is restoring Peter to full apostolic ministry. So let's take a look at both, starting with the rebuke. Number one, 
By asking Peter three times if he loved him, Jesus is reminding Peter that he denied him three times. Kind of hard to miss. He wants Peter to remember the denials. He does not want him to forget what happened. He wants him to remember the denials so that he never does it again. There was a a man going to a, a new accountability group. He was invited to join, so he decided to go. So he went, and there was this group of five or six men, and they all got together. And after the introductions were made, they started going on the room, around the room and confessing the sins that they had committed that week. And then uh, one of the guys says, I know, as a, as a sign of good faith, um, let's all confess our greatest sin to our, to our newest member. So one by one, they went around the circle, and they each laid out their most shameful, most disgusting sin that they've ever committed in their entire life. And then they got to the new guy and they said, okay, now it's your turn. Go ahead. What's, what's the worst sin you've ever committed in your life? That man said, hmm, um, you know what, guys? I, I don't really know you that well. And I'm just not ready to do that. Which I think is a reasonable response. I'm not sure anyone would want to confess the worst sin of their entire life to some strangers that they've known for about 10 minutes. But the point is this. They all had one. They all had a greatest sin of their entire life. We all do. We all have the biggest, most disgusting, most shameful sin we've ever committed. There is a reason Jesus is forcing Peter to look his greatest sin in the eye. He doesn't want him to forget it. We don't want to forget our greatest sins. Now, we don't let them define us. We don't camp out there. We don't dwell on them. And we certainly want to remember first and foremost that that greatest sin is forgiven in Christ. But we don't want to just brush them off as no big deal. We, we want those sins to stand like a cautionary memorial stone in our life. So that every time we look at it, we vow never again. Every time we think about them, we give God glory for his grace on our life. And we pray for the spiritual strength never to walk down that road again. We don't want to forget our worst sins or pretend like they're not there. We want to harness that memory and put it to work for us. Let it lead us to greater prayer. Let it lead us to a greater sense of God's grace and forgiveness. Let it lead to an increased level of spiritual watchfulness. In our life. Reminding Peter of his sin is part of the rebuke. Number two, the first time Peter, or excuse me, the first time Jesus asks John if he loves him, he adds more than these. Do you catch that? More than these. This is also part of the rebuke. Some have thought that the these are the fishing nets. And Jesus is asking Peter, if he he really wants to leave uh, his fishing profession, if he's sure he wants to follow him or that it's some kind of choice. But this passage isn't about Jesus demanding Peter to make a choice between work and following the Lord. This is a passage about Jesus rebuking and restoring Peter. So what does the more than these phrase mean? Well, on the night before the crucifixion, Peter had pledged to lay down his life for Christ. Recall that? And in doing that, 
he's making a very boastful declaration about his loyalty to Jesus. And in, in Mark, he compares himself to the other disciples in a way that makes himself out to be better than the rest. Uh, Mark fourteen twenty nine, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. <laughs> that is a pretty impressive statement, Peter. Really? You're, you're better than everybody else in the room. I mean, the, the, he's, he's looking at himself in the mirror singing, how great thou art. The, the, this is quite a, a prideful statement. And then, of course, we know what happens. He goes on to deny Jesus three times. When Jesus says, do you love me more than these? He's asking Peter if he has learned his lesson. Do you still think you are greater than, than everyone else? Do you love me more than these, than, than everybody else? He's teaching him, do you understand that I'm not looking for loud, boastful professions of loyalty? I don't want some kind of showy display where you make yourself out to be some kind of superman of the faith who's spiritually stronger than everybody else. Jesus is hoping Peter has developed some humility throughout this experience. He's rebuking Peter's pride. Number three, this conversation was not private. It was in front of the other disciples named in verse two. That's why we have them in verse two to make sure we understand they are witnesses to this conversation. Jesus didn't quietly take Peter aside so he he didn't hurt his feelings while they talked about this. No, Peter denied Jesus in front of other people. This conversation is gonna happen in front of other people. Number four, we're told in verse 17, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? So the third time Jesus asks him, do you love me? Peter was grieving. Why? Why was Peter grieving? Well, because this is happening to Peter real time. Peter doesn't know or didn't know in advance that Jesus was going to ask him this question three times. We know because I think most of us have read through the Gospel of John. Peter didn't know. This was happening to him. The questions came one at a time. The, the, the first two times, Peter seems genuinely bewildered. I mean, the second time, he may have started to wonder where this was going. But by the third time, he asks, he quickly realized, oh, okay. I denied him three times. Now he's asking me three times. And that brought a fresh wave of grief and regret. Peter is not grieving because he's offended that Jesus asked him about his love three times. He's not saying, how dare you ask me three times? That's not it. He's grieving over his own sin. The triple questioning brought to mind the pain of his triple denial and the pain that that caused his Lord. So this is a rebuke, but it's also a restoration. Let's look how it is a restoration. Number one, by asking Peter three times if he loved him, he is providing an opportunity for Peter to experience success. Three times he denied him, but now three times he gets to profess his love for his Lord. Number two, by having this conversation in front of witnesses, Jesus is publicly restoring him to full apostolic office. A triple denial would have been enough, at least in most people, to wonder if Peter was still qualified to lead the church. Uh, Peter? 
He kind of had his shot. Isn't he the one who denied Jesus three times? Didn't he bring a curse down the third time? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's who we want at the helm of the church. Jesus wants to make sure the other disciples, and by extension his church, know that Peter is restored. And by having this conversation in front of witnesses, Jesus is saying, for the record, let it be known, I have forgiven this man and I have fully restored him to office. He is a leader in my church. And that's all it takes. If Christ says that about you, that's all it takes. Jesus was not going to leave Peter's reputation in question. Number three, Jesus' responses reveal that he is giving him full restoration to ministry. He said, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. He's telling Peter, I want you to do what I've called you to do. I want you to fulfill your purpose in life. I want you off the bench, back in the game. I want you to be a leader in my church, so go and do that. Jesus didn't say, okay, we're good, go in peace. No, he said, you're forgiven and I want you to go and lead my church. He gave him an assignment, full restoration for ministry. And then verses 18 and 19, we have Jesus telling Peter what kind of death he will die. That's what that expression, arms stretched out, means. When you're old, not yet, but when you're old, when, you're, when you've completed everything I've given you to do, you will face the same death that I faced, Peter. I'm restoring you to the whole package. Not only do you get to lead my church, you get to die a martyr for my name. And you get to suffer on a cross. You get it all. The phrase, follow me, at the end of verse 19, it can have this meaning of follow me in faith, follow me with your whole life in discipleship. And that's what it can mean. But it also has the plain meaning here, meaning walk with me. Because in the very next verse, we see Peter turning around and seeing John. And he says, Lord, what about this man? Jesus had just revealed some information about Peter and his future and what kind of death he was going to die. He's kind of curious. What about, what about John? Is he going to go to the cross too? But Jesus shuts him down. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't worry about him. Pay attention to your own life and ministry. Why does it matter to you what happens to him? You, you follow me. Don't worry about John. I'm calling you to lead my church and die on a cross. And I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't already done myself. And with that final comment, Jesus' unfinished business with Peter is concluded. He came, he said what he had to say, and Peter was both rebuked and restored. John includes an explanatory note in verse 23 just to make sure the reader does not misunderstand and think that Jesus said John was going to escape death. And then to conclude the book, John testifies what he has written is true, and he tells us that there are many works of Jesus that are not written down. This is a selected account of Jesus' life and ministry, not an exhaustive list of Jesus' life and ministry. But what we do have in the book of John is enough for someone to believe. Let's go back to that question that Jesus asked three times 
as they dealt with this unfinished business, do you love me? Do you love me? This question must be answered in the affirmative for every genuine believer in Jesus Christ. It's not optional. The the statement, I am a Christian, but I don't love Jesus, that's an oxymoron. It, It can't be true. If you are in Christ by faith, you will love Christ. You cannot understand what God has done for you and not love Christ. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't work. Uh, Romans 5, 6, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. We're the ungodly that Christ died for. Romans 5, 8, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then 1 John four nineteen kind of summarizes Everything we love because he first loved us. We have to love Christ because what he's done for us. Genuine believers will love him. But it's not just a profession of love. This profession has legs on it. This profession has, has, is an action word. It, it, this, this is something we do. When Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you, Jesus followed it up with a command, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Who are the sheep? His church. His people, other Christians, tend to feed, minister to, lead, care for, instruct my church. If you love me, I want to see some action. And that's what we're all called to. If our love for Christ is genuine, it will result in action for Christ in his church. And remember, Jesus is not looking for anything flashy before we get all concerned and worried about what we have to do for Christ. Yes, there are some giants that God has used in a powerful way in key moments of church history. Peter, Paul, uh, Luther, um, Wycliffe, Tyndale, Calvin. Sure, yeah, there's been some giants, but vast majority of Christians over the history of church have been ordinary men and women like you and me. Just plain Christians quietly laboring for the Lord, steady day in, day out service to his church and other believers according to the way he has gifted us. Uh, J.C. Ryle said, usefulness to others is the grand test of love. Do we love Christ? Yes. Then serve his church. Serve others. If you love Jesus, then serve his church. Serve your brothers and sisters. Serve as a a Christian mother or father who raised children in the Lord. Serve as as a child who honors their father and mother by obeying them in the Lord. Serve as a a single who refuses to, to live in a way that the world says singles should live, but instead radically lives for Christ. Serve as a Sunday school teacher. Serve as, with your acts of mercy. Serve as a youth leader. Serve with your gift of encouragement. Serve as a VBS volunteer. Serve with your gift of generous giving. Serve with your musical gifts. Serve as an elder or deacon. Serve with your artistic gifts. Serve with your gift of evangelism. Serve as a nursery worker. Serve with your skilled labor. 
Serve with your gift of photography. Serve with your gift of administration. Serve with your acts of kindness. Serve with your your technical or professional knowledge in some area. Serve with your acts of hospitality. Or served with your gift of helping. If you love Jesus, then serve Jesus in his church. Steady, consistent, unassuming labor serving in the way that God has gifted you and called you. Unfinished business means that there's something incomplete or unresolved. If you are a believer and you are not serving Christ and his church in some capacity, then you have some unfinished business. If Christian service is missing in your life, then your Christian life is incomplete. Finally, I have to close this sermon series out with a general gospel call. How can you not conclude the book of John without a gospel call? If you're not in Christ, then you have some unfinished business to take care of with God. Please understand, there, there, are no, there is no fence post to sit on. You are either in Christ or not. Christ, at the end of the age, is not going to welcome everyone who has put their faith in him into the kingdom. And then also all those that are sitting on the fence and have thought about thinking of going all in. No, he's going to say, come into the kingdom, those who are his, and everybody else is not. There is no fence post. If you have some unfinished business with God, now is the time to take action. Like Mark in the living room furniture, many people think they can make their own salvation. How hard can it be? They tell themselves, I'll live my life as a good person. I'll just do enough good things to outweigh the bad things. Or like Mark, some people put off coming to Christ because they're, they're doing research. There's so many ways to God, so they think. Who's to say which one is right? I'll keep learning, exploring, listening, thinking. Comparing, contrasting, questioning. But like Mark, all they're doing is putting off the inevitable. At some point, they will admit that they can't make themselves right with God. They don't have the tools. There's only one way to be made right with God. And that is to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Trusting in him alone for salvation. You cannot earn your way to God. There is no way to achieve enough merit to please God. The only thing that pleases God is placing your faith in his son. That, That is square one for pleasing God. Repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus in faith. You can't afford to leave this unfinished business with God any longer. Amen.